If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to finish up 1 Corinthians chapter 12 this morning, beginning in uh, chapter, I mean, verse 12, and we'll read through verse 31. And uh, I just want to let you know that 1 Corinthians is a hard book, and it's hard because we're culturally removed uh, from what was happening there. It's also hard because uh, Paul is, is tackling one issue after another. And if you have children or um, you relate it to any human being for that matter, if you were to relate to them the way that Paul is relating to the Corinthians, at some point you will discourage them. If every time you met with your child and you only confronted what they did was wrong and you had nothing good to say, that you would crush them that if you related to your spouse that way, that you were always bringing up faults and never affirming what is beautiful and good, that you would crush their souls. And so reading 1 Corinthians, that, that it does kind of have that type of bent, that it's, Paul is confronting issue after issue after issue after issue after issue. And I just want to let you know that I don't feel that way about you. All right. So I'm not reading this book and saying these are all the problems at Redeemer. Right. That is not my posture. Like you are an amazing church and God is at work. And there are many things that are praiseworthy here. However, though, we got to deal with the stuff that's in the book. All right. We good. All right. So first Corinthians 12. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit were we all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves, or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong on the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and then various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak the tongues? Do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts? And I will show you still a more excellent way. 
Amen. Let's pray. Father, uh, your word is good. And as Trey so beautifully reminded us this morning, our desire is not to read it and change it. Our desire, Lord, and what should be our desire is to hear it and be changed by you. And so use your word, use your servant, and build up your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to think this morning about laboring for a healthier body, but not your own physical body. I'm meaning the body of Christ, the church. In our Redeemer Explore class, which is our new members course here, we cover a lot of material But there is a week in which we kind of work through our mission and vision, and then we kind of get to what are the the, the healthy marks of church membership. In other words, if you were to ask me, Pastor L, or you were to ask the the elders, like, hey, like, what's a good, healthy member at Redeemer? What do they look like? And here's what we'll tell you, that this is what we desire for all of our members. We want Redeemer to be an intentionally multi-ethnic, gospel-centered, covenant community, where every member has the opportunity to do five things. Worship, learn, give, connect, and serve. You get that? Worship, learn, connect, give, serve. That, that, that's kind of what we look at in terms of healthy church membership. And it's that last one that I want to focus on this morning. Our vision is that every member from the newborn in the nursery to the senior citizen on their deathbed, that they serve us and they use their gifts for the making of disciples and the maturing of the saints. And you may be wondering, wait a minute, Pastor, how can a newborn serve us and make disciples And I'm going to tell you, like, they they image what it means to be dependent and needy. Is that not who we are? Are we not a needy, dependent people? Of course. And what about older citizens? Do, do, Do they not teach us how not just to live, but how to die? Does not the Bible say in Titus chapter 2, older women, don't complain about the younger women. Do something about it. Like, use your gifts to make them more godly. And so what we believe is that from the womb to the tomb and everybody in the middle, that when we pronounce and trust in Jesus, the same grace that saves us is the same grace that comes to us multifaceted and it enables us to serve him in a local community. And that's what we want. It's the reason I had Wilson read from Exodus 35 that this is not just a New Testament idea. When they were building the tabernacle, the Holy Spirit was poured out on men and women. It says all of Israel. And it says, as the Spirit of the Lord moves upon you, you help in building the tabernacle. And so some men had metal and they could fashion metal. And some 
people had acacia wood that they were maybe growing. And God says, yeah, I want your wood. And some women had material and lambskins and purple and all this stuff. And God says, yeah, baby, I want you on the team, too. And what they all did as a covenant community was use their gifts as the spirit moved through them. And they built something bigger than them. Named the tabernacle, a place for God's glory to dwell, and God used all of them, right? And sadly, churches, like the humans who constitute them, can become unhealthy over time. In Tom Rainer's book, his autopsy of a deceased church, he looks at churches that have died. And what I mean by they've died I mean that, that if you were to go back 30 years ago, you would see a building there and you would see vibrancy and you would see programs and you would see worship and you would see a worshiping community actually doing life in this space. And then you fast forward 30 years and the building's boarded up. And so what he does is he, he, he looks at churches that have died and he says, are there common factors? And he presents nine of them. One is they don't pray together. Right? They don't, be, they don't reflect the community that the church is in. Right? The community changes and they don't pivot. They keep wanting to hold the fork and be who they always were. Right? That's a mark. They worship the glory years of yesterday. They always think that all the better days were always behind us. That everybody begins to look out for their own interests. They get preoccupied with a building and building and building a bigger building, a better building and doing more stuff that their budget turns inward. That all of their money turns back on them for their comfort, for their building up and they forget the parish that they're in. But the one that's relevant to our time this morning is the great commission where we're to be on mission, making disciples and maturing the saints through gifts given to each one of us and churches that die, the great commission becomes the great omission people slowly start to bow out of using gifts and they start, they stop caring. And I think that's what Paul is pushing against. I think if you were to ask Paul, what's the real problem in this passage? It's that some, a small few, have ascended to the forefront of the church while the great many have been pushed to the sidelines and the great many don't see value in what they bring to the table and that's what Paul is pushing against and I think that's something for us to be mindful of so uh, I got four points three are going to be fairly decent and one's going to be really quick right here's the first point they're a non-symphonic church they're a non-symphonic church S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-I-C. You'll, you'll get where I'm going here lately. So Paul's writing this letter, but we know that Paul was not there. 
Paul's either receiving this info from Chloe or this is coming by way of a letter or correspondence that's going between him and them and vice versa. And what Paul is hearing is that certain people with certain gifts are ascending while others with other gifts are receding to the background. And this lack of balance is not an issue with God. God has given the church all the gifts that she needs to serve him. See, we think that God is kind of like Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 5. Exodus chapter 5, Pharaoh, the ruler, tells Israel, the servants, make me bricks. But then he does something real sneaky. He says, and I'm not giving you the straw to make them. You got to get them yourself. And we kind of think that God is like that. Serve me. Serve me and use these gifts. Serve me, right? But God isn't like that. God is different. The God who says, serve me, is the God himself who gives us the capacity to do it. In other words, we studied last week in Ephesians 4, when Jesus ascended, he gave gifts to everyone, right? Last week, 1 Corinthians says the Holy Spirit gives gifts as he intentions. Romans 12, 1 Peter 4, that we're talking about spiritual gifts that Jesus graciously bestows upon his people. The same God who saves you from himself is the same God when he saves you, he gifts you to serve him. It's two sides of the same grace. He does not save and then does not give you gifts to serve him. They go together. And so the issue isn't God. The issue is God's people. Now, there's a lot of mystery around these grace gifts. You'll read them in 1 Corinthians 12. You'll see them in Romans 12. You'll see them in 1 Peter 4. You'll see them in Ephesians 4. How does personality and passion relate to the gifts? I'm an an extrovert. It comes more naturally to me to walk up to a stranger and talk about Jesus. Is that personality or is that like gift? Can you fan the flame of your spiritual gifts? Like if you don't use it, do you lose it? But Paul says fan the flame of the gift. In other words, look, Timothy, you have this. Now now use it, exercise it, grow in competency in it. Don't put it on the shelf. Is there accountability for the gifts? The scriptures seem to say that you've been given talents and we'll be responsible for how we stewarded our talents and our gifts. What gifts have ceased? By definition, apostles are those who saw Jesus. Can we have modern day apostles? I doubt it, right? What about healing? What's the relationship between modern medicine and healing. We've laid hands on some of you and anointed you with oil, and we've seen miraculous healing happen. And we've also seen you go get chemo or take medicine, and you're healed. What's the relationship between all of that and these gifts? What, miracles, right? What's the relationship between miracles and how we live our lives? What do you do when when God does not grant you a miracle? 
What do you do when you have a missionary in Thailand like we do that I took to lunch a few weeks ago and spent two hours with him? And I said, Trey, talk to me, man. What's, what's been glorious about church planting in Thailand? And he's telling me story after story of things that God, are, God is doing. And then he says, Pastor Hale, I got three women in my church who's, who were not believers. And Jesus met them in their dreams. I said, ooh, like what? Like they had a dreams, three different women had a dream and they found their church. And now they're born again believers serving in their church. He said, Pastor L, I'll write it down and, and put a statement on it. What, what, what do you do with that in the West? Here's what we know. D.A. Carson writes about these gifts and he makes the case some have ceased. He says, but we have to be careful that Paul is not too concerned to define these spiritual gifts that you see in verse 28 too narrowly. He just told us there are varieties of services, same God, varieties of activities, same Lord, varieties of gifts empowered by the same spirit. And so when we look at this list that God has appointed apostles and prophets and teachers and miracles and gifts of healing and helping and administration and various kinds of tongues and faith and service and wisdom and discerning of spirits and exhortation and generosity and zeal and mercy. Like when we look at this list, one word describes them all and it's vast like God is a God who gives vast diverse gifts to his people that they might serve him and so imagine Mississippi Veterans Memorial Stadium right around the corner imagine it's Saturday afternoon and it's in the fall and Deion Sanders is not our coach anymore okay but we still got the boom the sonic boom of the south and they're going to come, whoever the coach is. And if you've been there at the game, then you know what happens at halftime. You start to see them march on the field. And you start to see him scurry on the field. And then you see the band director ascend. And then you see his hands raised. And then he starts. And then you hear the trumpets. And then you hear the tubas. And then you hear the trombones. And then you hear the saxophones. And then you hear the percussions. And he's just there. And you hear this symphonic, beautiful sound. And guess what? They're all different. And here's what Paul is saying. When you think about the church that's God. God has ascended to the throne and God has given gifts. And when God holds up his hands and says, play, what he's expecting to hear is you with administration, you be administrating. And you with mercy, you be doing mercy. And you with the ability to teach, you be teaching. And you with the ability to give, you give your money away. And you with the ability to do this, you do it. And when this conductor is conducting, the sound you hear is symphony. Amen. And that's not what he's hearing in Corinth. He's hearing one section play and he's hearing silence over here. Now, here's the question I want to wrestle with. Isn't this easy to happen in our day? It is. You know, you need to strike through apostles. I don't think you can have modern day apostles. So I'm there with you. Tongues. Man, I, we can talk about that more. I'm, I'm not convinced that it continues the way that they're talking about here, but we can talk about it. 
But, he, but that's not the issue. Here's the real issue. What Paul is pushing against is that they're non-symphonic. Here's what I mean. Isn't it easy to be a church where we have big heads theologically? And we're listening to podcasts, we're reading books, we're reading devotionals, we're doing all of that. But then when you hold up your hands, ain't no calluses there. You see, calluses come from work of doing ministry, not just thinking about ministry. And so it's easy, right, to be big-headed theologically, but your hands are soft, right? And it's also easy to be calloused-handed We're ready to serve, ready to go, signing up for everything, but your heart is hardened. Why? Because it's not being informed by the sweetness and the right dividing of the gospel. You you see what's happening? It's easy to be a, what we call a resource church. This church got millions and gazillions, and we can send missionaries to the moon. But then we step over the poor. And we're not merciful to people right here next door to us. And isn't it easy, right, to have administrative gifts off the charts where you can build a structure, build a system, build a ministry. But guess what? You got people in the church who don't give and are not exercising the gift of radical generosity. So no matter what you construct, You're hamstrung because their gifts are not being brought to bear. This is what Paul is pushing against. They're non-symphonic. And I think that can easily happen here. Now, why? That's the second point. Why? What are some reasons beneath the surface? So if Paul is not hearing symphony, we want to go underneath and say, why does that happen? How do churches skew towards unhealth? Now, some of these reasons are valid, and I'm going to give you some that I've thought through, but then I want to come back to what I think Paul, the, the reason Paul is pressing in. There are various reasons this happens. Some of you have children, and children are a blessing from the Lord, and they deserve your time, mother and father. And if you have a child, it's fitting to take a break. For a moment, your gifts will be missing. And some of you have had or have older parents who have become childlike and they need your care. And for a season, what you would normally do in the life of the church, you have to set aside. There's also the fear of man, that I'm thinking about new members who join who, who, and they tacitly think they're on a probationary period. Like, I'm, I'm a member, I'm here, and I, I, I want to get in the pool and swim, but I'm just going to dip my feet in, right? I've also heard that if you're a person of color in this body, in this denomination, that sometimes it's intimidating to want to use your gifts because you worry about Am I being perceived the right way? I don't know the theology. I don't know the vernacular. I don't know how to navigate it. And so what you do is you fear man and you stay on the sidelines. I also think there can be a fear of change. And I'm speaking or thinking about older members who've been here for a time. And this newer generation or new people come in and you take it upon yourself 
to be a guardian of the gate. Right? And you look at people with suspicion. But brother or sister, they have just professed faith in Christ. They have just gone through a new members class. They have just been examined by elders that you nominate. They've just submitted themselves to vows, to peace and purity of the church, to study it and to use their gifts for the work and the worship of the church. But it's so easy for us to get territorial and we fear change and we mistrust and because and then we start to posture and to to block people out. And we don't create a culture where we say, no, baby, we need you in the game. That's a reason churches can skew towards unhealth. We can skew towards unhealth because we're busy. We got tennis matches to go to and baseball games and piano recitals and ballet practices. And we got the after work social hour and we got to go to the beach and we got to go to this game and we got to, we just got to, 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 got to. And then you look up and you're missing from the body. And I'm indicting myself. We get overwhelmed. You see this list of, hey, choir. Hey, Sunday school teachers. Hey, community garden. Hey, we got a fellowship meal. We got Sunday school, men's ministry, women's ministry. We got Redeemer Community Arts. We got Redeemer Young Adults. It's just a lot of stuff. And so when you look at the bulletin, it's paralysis from analysis. You just kind of see everything and you're like, man, I want to get in and use my gifts, but I just don't know. It's too much going on. Or maybe it's ignorance. You always thought that only pastors got the gifts. And no one told you that when Jesus saved you, he gifts you with a way to glorify him. And so your ignorance of the truth keeps you on the sidelines. And here's the thing. If you have a church where there's fear of man, fear of change, radical busyness, suspicion, and then people with legitimate reasons to take a break, if you mix all of that into a pot, guess where your church will skew? Towards non-symphonic sound. But that's not the issue. There's another issue. What's going on in Corinth? It, it reads as if they became overly enamored and preoccupied with one gift, and that's speaking in tongues. Over in 14, Paul says, look, desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, right? In 13.1, if I speak in tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. This is why Paul actually has to say what's going on is if the foot is saying, hey, well, I'm not that, then therefore I'm not a part of the body, that it reads as if they have exalted the gift of speaking in tongues. And if you don't have that gift, then you're nothing. They idolized one gift and they devalued others. And therefore, this church is in a bad shape. How do you know it's in a bad shape? 
Because you're speaking in tongues, but buddy man is over here sleeping with his father's wife. You're speaking in tongues, but when you have the Lord's Supper, y'all are skipping the poor. Now go, go look at the list. Are there not a, is there not a gift of mercy? Yes! Is there not a gift of helping? So you mean to tell me the ones that are supposed to be helping, that are supposed to keep their eyes on the poor, because you exalt speaking in the tongues, is there not any one of you to speak out for the poor? Administration, that's a gift. Discerning gifts, spirits is a gift. So you mean to tell me that no one will administrate discipline when you see what this brother is doing? They're exalting one gift and others are falling to the wayside and their church is skewing towards unhealth. So, when I became a Christian, my boss saw me reading my Bible and I was working in Kentucky at the time on my lunch break. And she said, hey, can you come to my office? Okay, sure. Went to her office, she closed the door. I said, oh man, I'm in trouble. Like, what did I do? And she said, you're a Christian? I said, yes, ma'am. He said, do you speak in tongues? I said, no. Talk to me about that. And she opened up her Bible, went to the book of Acts. Every true believer has the gift of tongues. I was like, Miss so-and-so, I don't got it. She said, do you want it? I said, yes, ma'am. And so for five minutes in her office, she laid hands on me with the door closed. Now, so a lady who's a lawyer came up to me afterwards and said, look, that was wrong. You can't, you, she can't bring you to the office and close the door. That's a whole nother thing. For five minutes, she has her, head on, her hand on my head, and she's speaking in this language I have never heard since then. And after she finished, she says, do you have the gift? I said, no, ma'am. Okay, let's go again. And I said, Miss Janet, I don't think it's coming. And her reply was, when you have enough faith and become a real Christian, you'll get the gift of tongues. Do you know what that did to me? What did she just do? Exalted that and devalued that the spirit might be working a different way in me. And here's what I think we have to do some reflection. If Jesus were here as the master conductor, how would Redeemer sound to him? Would he hear administration and mercy and generosity and care for the poor and discernment and teaching? Would he hear the symphony? Or are there people or gifts that we exalt while belittling others? Now, as a corrective, Paul does correct them, right? He actually says, look, y'all want to talk about these tongues. Look at verse 28. He appointed for the church apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Look at where tongues is. He puts tongues last. That's his way of saying, look, y'all, y'all got it so backwards. Y'all are exalting tongues, what's coming from your mouth, but the church is actually built around what's coming from God's mouth. The men and women who walked with Jesus, who saw Jesus. 
Those who proclaim, thus saith the Lord, the church is built not around your words, but around God's words. Now, how does Paul help them to grasp what he's after? He gives them a beautiful metaphor. That's our third point. So Stephen King, in his book on writing, he says, a metaphor is a kind of miracle that occurs between the writer and the reader. It allows a reader to see an old thing in a new and vivid way. So in the movie Forrest Gump, you might have watched that movie a long time ago. And there's a scene where Forrest is sitting on a bench outside, I think it's a hospital. I YouTube clipped it. And a woman who's a nurse walks up and sits next to him and he has a box of chocolates. And he says, would you like some chocolate? And then she just looks at him. And then he says, mama always said life is like a box of chocolates. Remember that part? And then he goes on to say, because you never know what you'll get. Metaphor. This is the old school box of assorted chocolates. Not not the ones y'all got now. The ones y'all got now got like 3D images. This is macadamia nut from Mediterranean and Mediterranean salt inside of a a milk chocolate with nougat. I mean, like y'all's assorted boxes of chocolates now are nothing like they used to be. You used to get a box with stuff in it and you had no idea what you were biting into. And when Forrest Gump says life is like that, sometimes you don't know what's coming. And sometimes you take a bite and you love it. And sometimes things that you didn't think you would like, you would love. And some things you thought you would like, you hate. Life is like a box of chocolates. Metaphor. But metaphors do something else. There's a study done in 2011. Two different groups read the exact same crime report about a city. And the only thing those administering this study did was change the metaphor at the top. And so group A got the same report that group B got, but in group A, they described the criminal element as a beast preying upon innocent citizens. They used the animal metaphor. Group B, who read the same thing, they changed the metaphor. Crime was described as a disease that plagued the city. And then both groups were asked How do you solve the crime? The group whose criminal element was described as an animal metaphor says you have to destroy it. The group that heard that crime was a disease was concerned about its root causes and how to cure it. Do you see what metaphor just did? It changes how you see the thing. And that's what Paul does in this passage. He puts a metaphor in front of them. And he basically says this, you are N-E-W, new to the Christian life, and you're new to the church. I'm gonna take something that you K-N-O-W, you know about, to help you understand what is new. He pulls something that they knew very well, a body, And what they don't know how to do well, namely relate to one another, he says, this body right here is going to help you understand your role in the church. And he wants them to look at the church not with anger or arrogance, but tenderness. 
And so they would have known what a human body was. They had a body. They would see their own selves in mirrors. They would walk down the street and see human bodies. And what Paul is saying, let the body teach you how to be the body of Christ. Now, to be, to be you know, precise here, Paul does not have a generic body in mind. I think he has the body of Jesus. Yes, Jesus is ascended. He's at the right hand of God. But Jesus so identifies with the church that what you do to the church, you do to him. And Paul envisions us being the hands and the feet with Christ being the head in his ascended state on earth. Now, what do we know about the body that helps us become a healthier body? First, we know that the human body is full of diversity. A healthy body has two legs and two ankles and two feet, and each foot has five toes, and we have two arms and two wrists and two hands, and each hand has five fingers. We have a neck and a head, and on our head are ears and a nose and two nostrils. And here's the thing, there is beautiful diversity in your body. And they each do different things. Your nose does not see. Your eyes do that. Your ears do not taste. Your mouth does that. Your feet do not run. Your legs do that. That there's difference. And think about this, like this morning. I have a routine every Sunday. Get up five, between five and five, 15. And my haptic touch on my watch goes off. And then a sound comes. And then I use my hand to hit my alarm. And then I roll out, not to wake Karen up, and I, I need my feet to stand upright. And I walk to the kitchen using my eyes to navigate through a dimly lit room. I don't want to wake anybody up. And I go to my coffee maker and I grind fresh beans with my hands and I put them in the coffee pot and I measure out filtered water and I pour it and I'm looking to make sure that the amount of coffee I'm grinding matches the amount of water I'm putting in. And then I use my fingers to push the button and then I go sit in my favorite seat and I just sit there and then I wait for the scent to come and I wait for the sound to click and I know my coffee's done and then I walk over. Do you hear the diversity? I need my fingers. I need my toes. I need my eyes. I need my ears and that's what Paul is saying there's diversity there's also unity in the human body look at how frequently he talks about unity the body is one though many members were one body for into one spirit we were baptized into one body we drink of one spirit in fact he says we're so united that if one member suffers we all suffer together if one member is honored we all rejoice together we are the body of Christ unified through our faith male female Jew Gentile black white rich poor slave free we're one in Jesus so if you watch the Celtics game last night, which I, I rarely kind of watch a game all the way through on Saturday nights. I usually will kind of go to bed, and, but I treated myself and stayed up last night. 
And if you watched it, you, you, you saw it. But Miami could eliminate Boston with a win, and they were up with three seconds left. And I'm thinking, man, they're going to send Boston home. Three seconds left. They call a timeout. They get the ball at half court. Boston inbounds. One guy shoots it. The ball rolls around the rim. And then Derek White kind of comes from the baseline with, with, with seconds left. And he jumps up and he touches it with his right hand and he gets it in right before the clock expired. And here's what your headlines won't say. They will not say Derek White's right hand won the game. <laughs> right? <laughs> Go look at the news. Derek White forced game seven. His whole person, even though the one member did the work, the whole person got credit for the victory. Oneness. And then you have interdependency. That's where in our diverse parts, each doing their part, needing one another. That's how bodies work. If my stomach or my tongue wanted coffee, my feet and my hands and my eyes had to work together. Derek White's right hand might have made the shot, but his eyes let him see the ball. His legs put him in position. And what Paul is saying to the church, that's you. You with gifts of administration and you with gifts of teaching and you with gifts of mercy and you with gifts of generosity, and you with gifts of wisdom, and you with gifts with distinguishing spirits, you're different, and be different. And you're one, and you need one another. There is no room to look down on another's gifts. That what will hurt the church is you, not bringing your unique God saved self and all of your gifts to bear upon this body. We don't all need to be teachers. We don't all need to be those with administrative gifts. We don't all need to have a lot of money. We don't all need to be deacons. We don't all need to be elders. That we are many parts of a beautiful body and we bring these things to bear upon the world. And this is happening here, and I'm so thankful. But here's the last point, really quick. Where's our power to behave this way? Where's the power? I want to take you back to the garden. I want to take you back to Genesis 2, when the first body was made. And it was made by God. And God took dirt, and he fashioned Adam. And he already knew what Adam would be and what he would do, that he and Eve would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and rule and subdue it. They would obey him and serve him, that they would make disciples. And here's the thing, just because you have a body does not make you able to go do what God calls you to do. What had to happen to Adam? God had to breathe in him. And then he became a living creature. 
And when God breathed into him, now he can go do the work that God is calling him to do. Did you notice how often Holy Spirit comes up in this passage? You're one in the spirit. You've been baptized in the spirit. The same spirit empowers you all and indwells you all. And in fact, he says, we drink from the same spirit. Some scholars think that what Paul is talking about is communion. D.A. Carson says that you can translate drink a different way. It can mean I pour out inside of you. And if that's the case, then what Paul could be saying is Holy Spirit has been poured in each one of you. And you are now a living spiritual creature, able to love your diversity, able to work unified. And if you're prideful, what Holy Spirit will do to you is give you gospel humility. And if you feel inferior, what the Holy Spirit will do inside of you is say, no, baby, Jesus loves you. No, you stand up and use these gifts he's given you and the life of the church. And if you did not previously want to serve the Lord and it felt like duty, Holy Spirit will change your heart and make it delight. And if you were swimming in ignorance, not knowing that you were gifted, what Holy Spirit will do is make you restless until you're serving the king of glory. What Paul is saying is you can't do this apart from the spirit. But as you walk in the spirit, we will be a diverse, symphonic, every member serving community of Christians making disciples and maturing saints in the lanes that Holy Spirit have carved out for us. I'm going to close with this. Not long after that employee shamed me for not having the Holy Spirit, or at least her manifestation of the Spirit, I got a phone call from another employee at GE who did know Jesus as well. And he says, Elbert, my wife has cancer. And I know you're a believer. And would you be willing to drive this man who is legally blind to a prison every Tuesday? He's been a chaplain there for 15 years. And I've been his driver for the last three. And he's gone blind over time. He cannot drive. And I said, Rob, I'll do it. And so for a year and a half, I drove this man who was blind to a prison. And we walked in there and we shared the gospel. It was a five-hour trip. And every Tuesday, I did it. And you know what the Holy Spirit did? You're not speaking in tongues like Miss Janet. That ain't what I got for you. What I got for you is these gifts of evangelism. (laughs) That's your lane. And you run that race. Do you see what the Holy Spirit did? He found me. He came behind me when she hurt me. And he says, I'm sovereign. I'm God. I run this. And let me tell you where I'm calling you to serve. And you go run. May that be true for all of us. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we bless you. We love you. Your word is precious and true and good. Make, a, make us a symphonic, everybody-serving, diverse, unified group of believers who bring our gifts to bear upon one another and this world. We pray this in your name. Amen.